You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. George Saunders is the author of books that include 10th of December, Lincoln in the Bardo, The Brain Dead Megaphone. Generally, when I speak to an author, I introduce them by listing as many of their books as I can say. With Mr. S- and sometimes the list is so long that I really can't tell say every title. With George Saunders, the problem is he has won too many awards to list off before we speak with him. But these include the Booker Prize for Lincoln in the Bardo, the Guggenheim Fellowship, the MacArthur Genius Award. Thank you for joining me, George. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Nice to be here. You know, as I read this book, you know, I just started out here in the first story, Liberation Day, which is... I think one of the most mind-boggling stories I've ever read, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, something called theory of mind, mm. which is this idea that when we look at somebody, we, I'm looking at you, and, I'm, and I can kind of construct in my mind maybe what you're thinking about me, and maybe what you're thinking I think about you. <laughs> And yeah. this can go to several levels. I think the the highest that a human being can achieve is the seventh level, if I'm not mistaken. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to wrap your brain around, which yeah. is which is sort of the point. But I think that theory hangs over much of the uh, work that in this book of you putting yourself in other people's shoes and looking back at yourself or at the other their characters in the story. I'm wondering how that works for you. I, I love that you mentioned theory of mind. That's so interesting. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I, I think the way it works for me is I'm, I'm imagining you. And uh, from what I know of you already, even it, that's a high mark. Like, like you're somebody who's really bright and really reads seriously and believes in it. So I'm imagining you and I'm going a line at a time. And with each line, I'm kind of trying to imagine with something beyond rational mind where you might be at that point. And when I say imagine, it's I couldn't articulate it. That that's not the point, but I can feel it. You know, it's kind of an act of imagining where you are. Um, and as you say, I'm imagining what you're thinking of me at that point for sure. You know, uh, and then I'm trying to keep reeling you in. So at some point, I think, ah, my reader is getting tired of this whatever riff I'm on then there's got to be an intuitive adjustment to bring the reader back in, you know? So ultimately it's, it sort of sounds like a form of salesmanship, but really it's a form of respect. I, I'm assuming that you're uh, just me, you know, you're me in a slightly different circumstance. So that's the kind of the process really, you know? Um, and, and it also assumes as, as, you know, theory of mind does it, that we're really good at that. You know, we can, we, we can pick up uh we can imagine a lot of nuance in our reader and the, and the text is a surface that we can micro adjust to produce more delight and more uh, allure, you know, something like that. Boy, you know, that idea of a, the text, text being a surface is a really fascinating one. And because it, it speaks to um, painting in a sense that I, I am a fan of a, a uh, fellow who used to work with Stock Stockhouse, and he's passed away now, Holger Shukai, and he once talked about uh, creating songs as like painting on tape. Mm-hmm. And and yes. you're painting on the page in a, in a similar manner. Yeah, that's a beautiful, you know, it's me, I don't know who said this, but it might have been Clement Greenberg, but it really made an impression on me that when you look at a work of art, he, he says something like everything important happens in the first half second. And then after that, you're discussing it and you're analyzing. But if it didn't nail you in that first instant, then, you know, you're done. And that, that has nothing to do with your concepts or your, you know, analytical mode. It's just something that happens to you, like getting off a roller coaster. You know, you're like, oh, shit, that was amazing. That, that's kind of what I think, you know, for me, I'm mostly just thinking about producing that effect. 
And so it's sort of a, yes, yeah, sort of non-conceptual, I guess. You know, one thing too is that the way you embrace writing is without borders. You're completely free. You go everywhere with the same amount of gusto. And I think a similar approach with your writing about a situation that the reader might as I did, I, I will admit, I started reading Liberation Day and I got I was about five pages in it. I'm thinking, you know, Rick, you might never understand what the hell's going on in this story. <laughs> That's not the case. By the end, I just had, had my mind blown like about 15 times successively, yeah. even further out into the the X space, as it were. But... um. You know, on the other hand, you you have a, a story like Mother's Day, which we instantly understand this situation. We in, instantly understand what's going on, and, and yet it's the same kind of feeling. You you use the same approach. Talk about embracing, you know, all the approaches of literature from totally fantastic and just a, a sense of invention that most people can only barely wrap their brains around to like everyday life but approaching it with that same kind of textual uh approach oh thank, that's a great reading thank you for that i'll, I'll remember that you know uh i, I think that the, for me the thing is that the the, the goal is always i'm going to say emotional power that's not it's not quite exactly emotional or something like that so by any means necessary you know and what i found out about myself is if i if i start out not really knowing what i'm trying to do uh then somehow I get to the emotion better. I think it's because if I know where I'm going, then you as a reader are put in a really passive position. You know, I'm just performing for you. But if I don't know where I'm going, then we're kind of at the same place to start with. You know, like in Liberation Day, I didn't know what was happening either. You know, at the beginning, you're just kind of following the voice and then you go, what the heck? Um, so I think that it's sort of an... Um, in any case, I want to try to get to a, a point where I really don't know what's going to happen. This Donald Bartholomew has this wonderful essay called On Not Knowing. And he says, the writer is that person who embarking on her task has no idea how to proceed, you know. And I always relate that to a second. It's an Einstein quote. He says, um, no worthy problem is ever solved in the plane of its original conception. Right. So if you know where it's going and you go there, you're a drag. So, so the trick is to confound yourself and then work your way out, uh, hoping that the reader is right behind you, you know, just as confused as you were. And then the most beautiful effect is the one you described where someone starts off saying, this is just too weird. You know, Saunders has lost it. This is a, uh, an insular, private, masturbatory document, I, you know, but then by the end, if I can speak right to your heart, you know, then we've come a really long way together, which for me is the, the biggest thrill. Uh Mission accomplished. <laughs> You're a very generous reader. Well, no, you know, that's the thing about this book is that this book is is also generous to its to its characters. No matter who they who they are, whether they're reprehensible or not, we know that you love them. But also, I think that, you know, uh, one of the things you, you were just saying was uh, that you're a what uh, is sometimes called a pantser in that uh, in, in, uh, you know you, you have no idea where you're going when you write that right. the, and <laughs> I think that's really apparent sometimes in, in the reading if the writer can surprise himself they can sure as heck shock the reader <laughs> that's it and that's it that's the trick is how do you you know you have a job right and you're you're a professional and I teach writing how do you get to the point every day where you generally don't know what you're going to do next. That that's, it's sort of, you know, contradictory because as you get older, you know, you kind of want to have some mastery, you know, but in this job, the mastery is to, is like Houdini to get yourself in a good trap, you know, a, the legitimate trap that you don't know how to get out of that's being open, you know? Uh, and then of course, you you know, your talents is limited. So to get yourself in a trap is not that easy either, you know, to, to find new material or to just elude your own controlling nature is pretty, pretty challenging, you know, so, but it's a great thing, you know, to be able to come into work every day and your job is to be six years old, you know, <laughs> it's like a clueless little kid wandering around, you know. 
that that also reminds me of another famous uh, musical artist whose work I enjoy, Brian Eno, who who thinks that you know the best music is made by the eternal amateur, who who mm-hmm. never thinks you have mastery over your instrument. That you're just you have to greet it every day anew and go well. Yeah, that's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, that's beautiful. That's and then you know it it sounds nice, and then you know it's interesting. It's like you know I'm 63, and you get a certain reputation, and then to really be uh, eternal amateur takes work. You know, you have to really overturn the habits that have accrued and and that kind of thing. So it's you know it's a great adventure, and uh, in this book, and especially in that title story, I was just so happy to find myself perplexed. You know, for about three months. how am I going to bring this thing home? You know, that's the best feeling. <laughs> well, well, I have to say, you really did now. It interested me, too, uh, that uh, the way you used, uh, I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, some of the research or just some of the reading you did for Lincoln and the Bardo uh, to inform some portions of uh, Liberation Day. And so talk about uh, using that kind of, the historical material i mean it's just so powerful yeah i i um when i was writing lincoln and the bardo there was this really critical moment where i I realized i was going to invent a a number of quote-unquote historical reports you know so and it's just the, the structure just said that's what i have to do so i started doing it and um it was so uh interesting because I, I started doing it in my own voice trying to sound edgy you know and they stuck out like sore thumbs so then the stylistic challenge was to sort of take them down a little bit make them sound mundane um and then always I was with that book I was always being guided by history basically you know I didn't I didn't really violate any of the truth of history in that book and I could feel how powerful it was to on the one hand write a real crazy section from the in point of view of a ghost you know and then you know, as we talked about earlier, as the reader starts to doubt me a little bit, like this guy is just screwing around, making ghosts, then you bring in something that's so factual, you know, what, whether I invented it or not, but so factual sounding that then the reader goes, oh, okay, now I'll hang in a little bit, you know. So this is another thing I've, I've figured out is you can keep a person interested by, by presenting contradictory faces. You know, you, you, you present this wacky ghost, silly, okay, then just about the time someone's wearing out, you put on your PBS NewsHour voice and tell a bunch of facts. Well, they can't leave then, you know, so, um, and, and they're not sure. They're not sure who I am. They're not sure what the book is. They're not sure what they think of it. And that actually is almost exactly equal to, to what we call, you know, narrative tension. Uh, somebody staying in because they're not sure what they're looking at, you know. In the, in the the title story, I think one of the things that, that this made me think was that this is also a really interesting vision of art. I mean, I, I I for me the story would be if my synthesizers could talk, I would not want to hear what they had to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that was that was one thing that grew out of it for sure. Is uh. You know, I, I think at some level, maybe maybe at not the most interesting level, but it's it's about this job of performing, you know, performing for a living, uh, trying to invent new voices for yourself. And actually, I, I went, you know, I noticed that, that there was a moment in the story where the, the character says suddenly he, he's really happy to have some facts to draw on that the creator puts a sort of module in his head and he knows all the facts about the little bighorn. And that was very similar to what happened in Lincoln. You know, when I said, OK, there's some history here. Oh, shoot that's a relief to have some facts to kind of constrain you and, and lead you forward. Yeah. Uh, interesting. So that this uh, story, you know, and I guess I somewhat intuited that, that as completely crazy pants in a sense, as this story is, it's also somewhat autobiographical. Yeah. I think every, I mean, if, if you're, if you're drawing on the subconscious as deeply as I do, everything is, is, is autobiographical. Now the the thing is with fiction, you know, in a sense, you don't get points for that. You know, the fact that it happened or it's true to your experience doesn't really matter, but it often makes the, the resulting text more powerful. You know, if it, if, if you, uh, if it's coming out of your, you know, psychological lexicon, it, it tends to land 
better, you know, just even in the language. So I'm always willing to take something that actually happened and pull it out, pull out of its original context and drop it in, you know, just anything, anything to make the, the ship keep going forward, you know. Uh, that's an interesting uh, uh, approach. I mean, it, it, it's very improvisational, it sounds like. I mean, you're up there, you get up there and improvise completely without stopping, boldly going, you know, trying to, it's like you're drawing the walkway in front of yourself over the Grand Canyon with every word. Yes, that's it. And, and that's beautiful. And then the other thing is, but you get to do it over, you know, so it's a, it's a bit like I mean, I do a little music and it's a bit like recording in a studio where you go in, you go nuts, you improvise and then you piece together. And if one of the pieces that you improvise could be improvised better, you take another shot at it. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. You get this the improv spontaneity and joy and then you get to come back the next day and put on, the, you know, the anal retentive hat and, and, and kind of make sure that the the improvs are in the right order, you know, so it's pretty, it's pretty rich. And my, one part of my approach is the, to just be real patient with it and really wait a long time. And the theory is if you're doing that, if you're doing, you know, like that liberation, they probably took nine or 10 months, you know, to finish that story. Uh, if you're doing that, you're making, you know, literally tens of thousands of choices or micro decisions over and over and over. And what tends to happen is the story gets more, uh, more intelligence and more juice than I have personally, you know. So that's uh, how really interesting. That's uh, gosh, yeah, I can see that because, in a sense, it's like the first time you do the story, it's you and the acoustic guitar, but then you can come back and add in all the strings, all the basses and drums and such, and fit them exactly. all in. And you and you and in that process, you're making a bunch of decisions you didn't even know would present, and if you're doing it again you know kind of intuitively you're you're injecting so much of your flavor into that that matrix uh m much more than you could ever decide in advance so it's you know it reminds me a little bit of um digital versus analog music you know with analog you're getting all kinds of little overtones that you didn't plan but they somehow uh at least according to neil young you know that they they land on your ear in a way that makes depth uh in in a sense in a way that the digital sound doesn't so to to, com to compose a story this way means that you you, you aren't really 100 well you're in control of it in the sense that you you approve the message at the end but there's all kinds of accidents happy accidents that happen um that you that i never could have planned out you know it's it's again it's that einstein thing if you, if you plan it out then you get what you planned but if you plan it out and then a abandon the plan in favor of increased energy then you get you don't know what you know and it can surprise you and, and even like now i'm kind of going around talking about the book and there's a whole bunch of stuff i don't understand you know or, or someone will point something out and i'll go oh yeah that's true i didn't yeah it's there it's in the structure but i didn't know about it you know you know um you recently had a, a short story from uh 10th of December and, and the New Yorker famously adapted uh, into the screen, Escape from Spiderhead. It was mm -hmm. adapted as Spiderhead. Um, could you talk about that experience and, and having the, seen, you know, the finished product? Yeah, it was interesting because that, that was, there was some, some biz, business stuff early, I would say slipperiness that I, uh, I, so I didn't really have much say in that one. It kind of got, uh, you know, sort of in a business sense taken away. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really didn't have anything to do with it, you know, until mm -hmm. the very end. And then I saw it kind of late in the game. And so, uh, you know, quite different from the story. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, of course, because they made different narrative choices, it means a different thing. Um, so I just kind of tried to enjoy it. You know, it, it was uh, I figure it was like a a couple of, of screenwriters who really love the story and they just did a Fantasia on it really. They just, you know, and which they, I suppose they have to do, you know, they can't uh, just, uh, so, so it was kind of just, you know, uh, a cover version it's, in film. It's yeah, like doing a cover yeah, version right. of, of an old, no, uh, of a Beatles song. Yeah. And I thought the direction was great. I thought the acting was fun. And, uh, you know, it's, I mean, at this point, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, working class kid from Chicago, you know, so that I have any kind of career is just always a constant source of astonishment, you know. So my wife and I we're, we're uh, 
we bought a little place in LA and we go up there sometime and we're driving Ace Hardware, you know, uh, with, uh, I don't know what, on you know, like uh, uh, extension cords on the mine or something. And we look up and there's this big billboard for, for Spiderhead, you know, and so that's kind of fun. But it was, it was uh, yeah, it's just fun to, you know, I, I always think about that movie, um, uh, The Jerk, you know, and Steve Martin is in love with the Bernadette Peters character. And he says, you know, I, I just, do you, do you think that we could make love sometime? And she says, well, you know, I, I have a boyfriend. And he says, do, do you make love to your boyfriend? She says, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. He says, oh, you think sometimes I could just watch? <laughs> and, then she, and then he says, I just want to be in there somewhere. <laughs> you know, so that's how I kind of feel about all this, this career stuff. It's so delightful to have anything, you know, just to be in there somewhere is nice. Well, I think that, uh, for you, I would imagine that finishing a story when you finished Liberation Day, you you must have had a, a, an immense sense of satisfaction. I mean, uh, this is a story too that you know you are. It's interesting that you're evoking, like you know, some of the giants of science fiction. Uh, I this book, this story reminded me a bit of. Uh, something that Stanislaw and Philip K. Dick would both write. But on the other hand, you're also, with a story like Mother's Day, you're getting into Flannery O'Connor territory. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have no borders, you know. I I mean, partly because I'm not that well-educated, so I, you know, I just go where the the heat is. But I really think if you, if you, I do have a clear idea of what a story should do, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, this goes back to being a working-class kid. I was reading such weird stuff you know uh, robert Perstig and khalil gabron and ayn rand and whoever a reader's digest condensed books i didn't really know what i should and shouldn't be reading uh so th- my barometer f- was just what kicks my ass basically you know uh so i don't have a whole lot of i'm not really that knowledgeable about science fiction but knowledgeable enough I mean, maybe especially through movies so i just go uh well yeah where i where i can confuse myself and where i can get some heat you know um so it's not really a a conscious decision to cross genres but it's just like almost like uh let me start anywhere i I feel like so if i take you know so here i'm in this hotel and i got this bottle of water and this pepper shaker right here if um i'm pretty confident that if i started writing a story where these talk to each other one all my shit would get in there because what you know what else and two i think i think i could bend it over time to where it would speak to you, you know? So that's kind of the operating assumption. Uh, and I often find that when I start with a non-realist, uh, you know, position, I, I go deeper. If I start with the sort of a, even just a silly sci-fi concept, it, it kind of frees me from some of the, uh, detrital ideas about realism. You know, I was mm-hmm. a big Hemingway, Hemingway guy. And so if I'm not careful, I can fall into a kind of a, a realist mode that doesn't, doesn't ascend mm-hmm. you know so to start with something just genuinely weird is a way that i that i i can kind of guarantee i won't go banal you know it's almost like you can't if you like if you dress in a bunny costume and go outside you're going to have an interesting day you know <laughs> so you know too i think it's it, just now it occurs to me that you know for me one of the virtues of science fiction and your science fiction certainly and the fantasy is that when you operate in that mode you can externalize things and talk about things that that are really difficult to talk about but um you know you also do that in in your uh, more i guess i'm going to just use the word mundane or realistic fiction mm-hmm. you manage to externalize ideas and i'm thinking of that mother's day story which also super knocked me out because i i just i love the way that you know you develop the kind of like uh hand hand climbing from one rung to the other mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and the character so talk about um you when you're writing a story, do you know what you're externalizing or does it just show up on the page when it's done externalized? Yeah, it's, it's more of the second thing. You know, you, you're kind of working on something. Uh, see, it, it's almost like, you know, it might be a little bit like, not that I know anything about this, but like a rock climber, you know, they're going up the thing 
they're in a position and then they have to, they look up and like, okay, where can I, where can I put my hands and feet? You know, what's the next thing? So I'll be riding along. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll find myself in a certain, find the character in a certain situation. I turn my mind to what she might be thinking. And then, then there's ideas. There are ideas. You know, if you put a person in a fix, they have ideas, you know, how they got there, how they get out, who victimized them, you know, that kind of stuff. So in a sense, it's like telling the story and then you're kind of open to any chance to enlarge the story, which often happens through a character's thoughts, you know, like there's, there's a moment in that story where the, uh, the second woman is kind of a, he's kind of a, I don't know they're both older women she's kind of a former hippie i guess you know kind of a little bit like new age in her thinking and um she's really just feeling resentful because she loved this guy and she never got to be with him you know so that's the story of her life so i'm i've got i'm in i'm in her head and in her body and, and i'm thinking and suddenly she we uh go into a riff about how the world should be you know and she kind of quickly sketches out this kind of utopian but also fascist kingdom you know that she's going to be the, the leader of well you know that's that's a pretty interesting idea but i only did it because she was so close to it anyway you know she she could nat she could just her mind could very naturally go in that direction so uh i don't i don't look for ideas but if you get in you know close enough into somebody's head you, you're gonna get some <laughs> yeah too i wonder because you're so firmly in your characters' heads. I mean, does that mess with your head when you're writing them? Like writing Liberation Day, that what seems to me like that would be a fairly stressful kind of experience. In the uh, it had the potential for for being a stressful personal life experience. No, for me, it's honestly even the the most grotesque thing is just it's fun. Because it, it's it's you know you're you're starting off once upon a time and you're exploring it, uh, and the thing will you know like a story like that just opens itself up to you and you're like how in the hell do we get here you know uh, so that and also I'm not really you know I, I'm remember that that commercial uh, I'm not a doctor but I play one on TV you know I, I'm not really in a character's head I'm in my head and it's almost like I'm I'm exa- I have a mixing board and I'm exaggerating certain traits of my own thought, you know, let's turn this up. Let's turn this down. Uh, let's, let's pretend that the brain having this thought is a woman, not a man, or is a really old man, whatever. So it's not really, you're not too far from home ever. You know, it's, it's coming from here in, in my head. Uh, and so it's kind of just, you know, like the magician, you don't really cut the assistant in half. You just appear to. So, so no, for me, it's really fun. And even it used to be stressful when I was younger and I get stuck. Because then, of course, you feel like you you've lost your mojo or you're you know you're an imposter. But now at this advanced age, it's just kind of like okay, if the story locks up on me, it's telling me that I'm not listening. You know, it's telling me that I'm not taking it seriously enough. That that Einstein idea, you know, it wants to ascend out of the plane of its original conception, and my initial conceptions about it are keeping it down. So it locks up. So, but so now I feel like oh okay, so I'll just wait. You know, I'll be I'll wait until I'm. Uh, adult enough to tell the story you know uh so there's not much honestly not much stress at this point it's all pretty much the only stress is that i'll you know run out of time and not get to um write the stories that will be better than these really that's that's the stress but even if that happens you know i had a good run (laughs) that's why it's hard to imagine stories better than these to be to to be honest you know one of the things i thought you did really well in liberation day and it, it was you described like a failed artistic performance. And, and, and I think that that's a really interesting thought to do that and uh, to do it so uh, like um, so in the midst of uh, an artistic performance that itself <laughs> is a stunning success, but doesn't draw attention to its stunning success. Yeah. So okay, can I say, I, I really like the way your mind works, you know, in the way that we're talking about surprising the reader, every question surprises me. It's really interesting. I, I, you, you kind of skip past all the banalities and get to the really interesting stuff. So thank you for that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that I think part of it is that story was there's a couple of stories in here that are kind of like playing with the idea of being a writer, you know, and mm-hmm. what it's like. Um, and, but, you know, it's interesting. There's a way in, in a story 
in stories composed the way I'm, we're talking about, uh, you're kind of, uh, how do I say it? Okay, so I described one failed uh, artistic attempt in Liberation Day where, where they get mm-hmm. a bunch of people together and then he's told to uh, pontificate on the, on the topic of city. And he's got this brain implant so he can do it, but it's, it's dull, <laughs> you know, and, and he can tell that the audience hates it and because it's just, a, it's just a pointless rant on his part. Okay, so I put that in there uh, because at that point, that's all I had. I knew that he had a, 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 an expanded verbal function, but I didn't really know what was good about it. So I tried it out. I said, okay, city. And I tried it and I thought, Ugh, that's not so good, you know? So then the, 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 the kind of wonderful moment for fiction writers to go, okay, I just wrote a kind of boring monologue about city, you know? Now, what do I do? It's boring. I could cut it or I could bend the story to accommodate that fact. In other words, I could put that fact into the story. So all you have to do is say, he does a speech and everybody's asleep, you know, bored. Then the reader goes, yeah, me too. And it's, then it's not a mistake. It's it's a plot. It's plot, essentially. So then the next point is you're sitting there and you're like, okay, now the next time he is given to speak, um, it better be good, you know? And I thought, how can I make it good? And my mind went back to Lincoln and Bardo. And I thought, okay, what you need is some history. Then I invent this thing called a knowledge mod. I give him some history, you know? So it's not, it's funny, like you're not, you're not only writing your story, but you're being instructed by it. And you're being instructed by where you just put your character, which then you have to respond to it. You know, there's a great writer, a Chicago writer named Stuart Dybeck, and he's got even a stronger Chicago accent than I do. And he always says, uh, your story's always listening to you. No, no. Your story's always talking to you. You just got to listen, you know. Uh, you know, again, what you are describing just sounded quite a bit like uh, Brian Eno's, you know, process where he's doing something and his tape machine malfunctions and he's going well what the heck am i going to do with that and and, oh no well i'm gonna i'm going to make sure it malfunctions deliberately yay yeah yeah yeah. he just responded what you did i have a colleague at syracuse uh, named michael burkhardt and he used to talk about you know when you're you're typing something and you mess up and you say i've got to go out and walk the god you know (laughs) so he would say well that that's not a mistake that's Maybe it's your subconscious, but in any event, it's there. So, all right, I got to go out and walk to God. From, down from heaven, he came, you know, with the leash around his neck. <laughs> so there's something really rich about the idea that you can, um, that there are no mistakes in, in storytelling. You know, I mean, sometimes there are, sometimes you have to edit and revise, but occasionally the subconscious will give you a little, a little gift. And um, then the story's job is to respond to it. You know, that's, that's, that's something I learned from Chekhov that, um, you know, there's a beautiful story called Gooseberries that I wrote about in this uh, book called The Swim in a Pond in the Rain. And he, he's got one part where um, a character is given a big speech about how selfish happiness is, the quest of happiness, how, how kind of uh, bourgeois it is to, to just live for your own happiness. It's like, why would you do that? There's so many suffering people. And, you know, he says, uh, every happy man should have an unhappy man in his closet with a hammer. <laughs> To remind him with his constant tappings and not everyone is happy. So it's a beautiful diatribe against happiness. And you read that and you're like, you know what? That is wise. Chekhov is wise. But he attributes it to a character. And then it dawns on you that earlier in the story, that same character has gone naked into a, a, a pond and is swimming with such happiness, such pleasure. He's calling out to his friends. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my God. You know, he's, he's so happy. So so Chekhov has has. Some somewhere along the line, he's noted that he's contradicting himself, you know, and he's let that stand. So it's such a you know profound story. You get to the end and you're like, okay, Anton, is it is it happiness is good or happiness is bad? And he just goes, la la, you know, and then he walks off the stage, and you're left in that state of of kind of you know holy perplexity that for just a few seconds your judgment is off, you know. Uh, this is the idea that. Um, you know, uh, holding the the intelligent mind is able to hold two contradictory um, ideas at once, and right. so that's what the great fiction does: is it puts us in the mind that we can't understand that all of a sudden we can understand, and yet, yeah, yeah, that's exactly beautifully said. Yep, that's it. You know, two. I, I was one of the things that uh, the 
title story made me think about was uh, a William Faulkner quote, I, I think, uh, the, the past is a foreign country. <laughs> and, and and I think that what you do there is is kind of just turn that right around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. suggest that you know the future is a foreign country, and that the things that that we now find totally comprehensible, somebody maybe even as little as fifty years ago would look would walk around and say, "What the heck are you doing?" Why are all these people walking down the street talking to themselves? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's it. I think he also didn't talk, also say the thing about the past was not really past. Or no, past was not ever finished. It's not even past or something like that. I can't quote it. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was in- interesting. The um, I did a lot of research for Lincoln. And then I did a lot of research for this little Custer portion in, the, in Liberation Day. And um, I read... Uh, a memoir by Joshua Chamberlain, who is the guy who supposedly won Gettysburg. For a while, that was the idea that he, there was one moment where he led a bayonet charge that turned the tide on the second day and, and won Gettysburg and then therefore won the Civil War. So uh, he, he, I, I read he, he'd written a memoir. So I read it. It was so sci-fi. It, his, his tone, uh, the way he thought about his comrades, the way he thought about uh, Maine, I think where he was from, the, or Vermont, the, the way he thought about the, the other, the Confederate soldiers, it was so, um, it was in some ways like going back to Renaissance or something. You couldn't, you, the systems of reference were so insular and so strange that it almost, it felt like if someone described, you know, the, uh, the space station in the year, you know, 3000. Uh, so I thought, yeah, in either direction, it gets pretty rickety. You know, we don't, we don't really, uh, uh, there was some Henry James said something about historical novels that you'd have to, you know, if you really, if the goal was to simulate life, then you'd not only have to know everything they didn't know, but you'd have to know what they took for granted. And that frame of reference is not knowable. You know, what, what did a house smell like during the civil war? We, we, we don't know, you know? Uh, so I, I'm fascinated by that. And then also fascinated by, in some ways, it's still the same, you know, there's still systems of oppression and systems of, uh, of power and and uh and and probably you know the turnings of a human mind are pretty similar actually you know you, you get jealous you get your feelings hurt you know so uh, anyway i'm just rambling but it, it, it's i do love to kind of uh pretend to write historical fiction you know well i i think in a sense something like a, a thing at work for example is historical fiction uh, the uh, at as Carly Simon once wisely said, these are the good old days. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That one's got a little bit of a 90s feel because they're they're not really uh, so much on the Internet. You know, they're kind right. of they're kind of in. in but, and that was when I worked in that kind of environment. So I'm sure I, you know, there, there might even be a fax machine in there. But I'm <laughs> not sure. <laughs> So, you know, I, I love the way the, the conflict in that works out. And just to also, too, this is it's a great example of your sense of humor, which is rather dark. And, and this also flows through, through the whole book. And I think no matter what, whenever the sense of humor shows up, which is early and often, um, it has the same kind of perspective. I think you do have a really interesting sense of humor. Have you ever dissected your own sense of humor? No, I mean, well, I, I, I try, I try not to. I, I, oh, guess, like, I guess that's the, yeah, that's like, yeah, yeah. it's kind of like thinking about how you walk, you know, like there, there was a, the other day in Syracuse, I, I teach at Syracuse and I was there and they were filming a little video for their website and they just, you know, just walked toward me and oh my God, it was like that Monty Python ministry of silly walks. So as soon as I thought about it, I was kind of, yeah, no, I, I mean, I know it's, it's a Chicago thing, you know, in Chicago where we grew up, there was a lot of, uh, you got a lot of cred for being funny. And also being funny was really a way of showing affection for somebody. You, you would rarely, you know, pay somebody a sincere, straightforward compliment, but you could tease them in such a way that they knew you, you valued them, you know? Uh, so there was a, so I, something about that for me, the, um, yeah, and maybe to a fault when I'm feeling something powerful, I tend to joke that that's kind of my way of, of maybe it's my way of not, you know, fully enjoying the moment or, or making sure I don't ruin it. But but uh, 
Yeah, it's kind of second nature for me. And it was a big, when I finally started being funny in stories, that was a huge moment. And I, I'd never written a story that had any emotional depth before. And as soon as I clicked on that humor button, I started, you know, landing that on that target a little bit. So, uh, there was a time you when know, your stories weren't funny. Well, you never would have read them. But yeah, they were, oh. they were, when I was in, when I was in, I wrote one funny one to get into grad school and then I kind of repented, you know, I was like, oh, that, that's low. That's, that's working class. I'll be Hemingway-esque and straight laced. And so I, you know, wrote two or three books that were pretty darn straight, you know, and they just didn't have any life in them that, you know, Flannery said, uh, Flannery O'Connor, I'm on a first name basis with her. Uh, Flannery said, um, uh, uh, a man can choose what he writes, but he can't choose what he makes live. Very wise, you know, so I, I had chosen to write this kind of, you know, serious, uh, almost elegiac, tragic, straight realism. And it just, yeah, I was like, the world was like, yeah, fine, but that's boring. You know, there's none of you in that. And so as soon as I, I just allowed myself to be funny the way I always was in real life, you know, or rye or whatever you want to call it, then suddenly the stories not only got verbally more interesting, but they also went to deeper places somehow, you know, so that's a, that's a mystery that I'm happy to leave mysterious, actually. You know, there's a, you have a story in here called Ghoul, which I think uh, actually, in a sense, tops Liberation Day in, in, in its inventiveness. Could you talk about like writing that story and creating the the? It's interesting because on one hand, it's not in the least bit fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like there's any great technological thing happening. Yet it's super weird, and, yeah. And, and I I love also. Let me just compliment your amazing sense of weirdness because <laughs> weird is very important in this world. I think it's the only way we get perspective. And yes. this story, Ghoul in particular, really you know emphasizes the perspective aspect. Yeah, I think weirdness is a, is a good way to remind ourselves that that normalcy isn't. You know. <laughs> There, we, 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 our mind, you know, as we, maybe as we started out with it, our mind uh, normalizes just so we don't go nuts, you know, and also for Darwinian reasons, it normalizes this. Uh, but really, you know, it, it, I mean, any time that you've been in a tragic situation or a dangerous situation, you realize that that's just a normalcy is an illusion that we maybe we need it to live. But here, OK, I'm in St. Louis and I'm in a hotel on the 19th floor. Looks very normal. I can see Mississippi. I can see a bridge. And then down here in the foreground, I don't know what's going on here, but there's a what looks like a 1890s building on fire. And there's two fire trucks that have been putting out the fire for like three hours. But there's no it's just it's just four guys, you know. So anyway, yeah, weird is OK with me. Uh, that story, uh, I, I, you know, as we said earlier, for me, the thing to do is start with something uh, that's intriguing and that I don't really understand. Sometimes it's just a voice. And so on that one, I had gone uh, to L.A. and read a, um, the audio book for my first book, Civil Warland and Bad Decline. And, I, you know, that was written when I was I was 20 or 30 years ago. So I kind of thought, ah, yeah, this is going to be weird reading this old work. But actually, I really enjoyed it. It was like reading somebody else's book, a sort of slightly demented young person who's really pissed off at capitalism. You know, so that was, that was fun. Uh, so I'm reading it. And I'm thinking, wow, this voice actually is still kind of alive in me. I, I remember, I remember. So I came home and just said, let's try a story in that voice. You're kind of a first person voice of somebody who's in a, a weird job, but it doesn't seem weird to them because it's their job. They've, they've been doing it. So I just really just was playing with that voice. And then as described earlier, I got myself Houdini up, right? Suddenly I'm like, wait a minute, this is a guy who's, he seems to be playing a demon in an underground hell-themed amusement park whoa you know what do i do with that and so that's when the fun begins because then you're, you're trying to stay true to his voice and his worldview and you're also trying to figure out why he's down there and so on so yeah definitely hilarity ensued and uh but the point of that again always is to sort of try to um at the end make the reader feel that it was about something all along something that was that's not foreign to her or something something that, she, that might keep her awake at night you know um, so that's the fun of the last third of a story like that is to say, why am I telling, you know, Dr. Seuss in, uh, 
uh, one of his books, he's headlined, and that's why I'm bothering telling you this, you know? So for me, that's a kind of internalized mantra, like, why am I bothering telling them this, you know? And if the answer is, I don't know, then you're in the middle of the story. Uh, and if you just start to intuit why, then you may be at the end of the story. And if you know it too well, you're dead. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a story in this book called Love Letter, which poses a problem for it, the characters within it, that the story itself is the solution to that problem, in a sense. But it's really... um a piercing and beautiful story. And I think one of the things that, that makes it so much is that we've all heard of the unreliable narrator. The character in this story is deliberately unreliable because it, it it's necessary. And I'm wondering, could you just talk about writing that story in this time? I mean, uh, in in two weeks uh we may not even be able to have this conversation <laughs> yeah 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 well it, that was just you know i i as i've gotten older i've i've noticed that anything i've ever said about writing is false like if you say i never do political well you might you know if if the if it was powerful you might so i in this case i thought i'm just gonna write exactly what i'm feeling right now about this is before the 2020 election and uh and when it wasn't looking that good you know so i said okay i'm just going to write uh, my feelings about the politics and so i wrote some stuff kind of elegiac stuff about america and so on then i said okay who's who's talking here and i said oh uh it's you if you had a grandson and it was 10 years from now or eight years from now or whatever so i just started that and then um what's interesting is if you if you if you start to type your opinion and you have sort of a muscular prose generating machine, you won't write exactly your opinion. You write part of your opinion. At that point, then you carve it out and you say, okay, this isn't me. This is Fred, you know, or whoever. This is somebody else. Then uh, they will start taking over a little bit. Or, you know, more properly, the part of your mind that made the first part will start exaggerating a bit. So pretty soon uh, I started off with my view. It became his view. And then the job is to look at it and go, well, what is he doing? Like, what does he think about this? You know, he's, he's writing a letter to his grandson in which he's advocating caution in a time of peril. Okay, I get that. That kind of makes sense. I could understand that. Then you're saying, well, what's the, what's the, uh, the drama in the story? You know, is how, can, how can this story exhibit some kind of change in that condition, right? So that story has just a tiny, it's, it's kind of the minimum you could get by within a short story and that he doesn't really change but you think that he might just beginning might be beginning to change at the very end so he's not he wasn't me uh and he's making i think by my standards he's a little bit cowardly maybe or or at least he's been burned and he and he's uh he's got his head in the sand while he tries to tell his grandson that he doesn't you know but that he that his grandson should you know so i don't know i in other words i don't know <laughs> i don't know you know, you used a phrase that I thought was really interesting, if you have a muscular prose style. And I think that that is uh, what makes a, a, a large part of your writing so powerful is that you let the words lead you, and yet you're able to not unknowingly be out just beyond the end of the words so that you can lead yourself, so that it's a it's a buyer bootstraps kind of thing happening at any given moment in any any given story. That's perfectly said. I I, I approve that message one hundred percent. That's yeah. I, I actually should memorize that and use it on tour tonight. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, Lincoln in the Bardo was your your first novel. Are you? And I have to say that. For me, at least, Liberation Day did pretty much everything that I would have wanted out of a novel in a, a more condensed form. And so I'm going to talk about, you know, writing at length because I imagine that one or another uh, of the management of the firm who publishes you has said, novels, novels, thrillers, thrillers, come on, come on. 
No, they're not like they know me better than oh. that, and they're, they're <laughs> and they love me, and I love them. So they're 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 um, I think they know as I do that that I, uh, you know, my mantra is kind of don't try, don't <laughs> try, or like Yoda, you know, try not, do only, you know. So so I'm not going to try too much. I'm just going to see what wants to be said, and if it's six pages, God bless, and if it's three hundred, you know. So I really have to stick to that because. I, I would love to write another novel. It was so fun. And you can feel that the reception of a novel is somehow more expansive. People just get them more. They're, they're, you know, the short story is, is kind of a, an acquired taste. So I would like to write another one. But I know from, you know, previous attempts that if I try, I'm going to tend to write a bloated short story, which I don't want to do. So I'm going to just wait and see. And, um, you know, you kind of want to honor the DNA of whatever comes to you. And for me, that usually means, you know, just just tell it quickly. Don't don't. Um, you don't, I don't feel like I'm very good at expanding an idea, but I'm, I'm good at uh, taking an idea and clipping it down so that it arrives with maximum potency. So I'm going to just trust my talent and say, well, whatever you, I was going to say, whatever you guys, whatever you guys want to do, we'll, you know, I'll, I'll be there to receive it. You know, too, uh, that makes me think again of Liberation Day in that it's, it, it, it's like those pictures of, you know, you see a picture of a person and then you see a picture of them without their skin and see all the muscles underneath it. Mm. And that's what that story is like. Is mm. And when you do that, it's much raw, more raw than than any, anything longer. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's probably also somewhat dependent on the writer. But for me, that's certainly true. You know, in, in, I used to be a runner and they would say, you know, fast twitch, slow twitch muscles. So fast twitch people are sprinters slow twitch muscles are long distance runners and you don't get to choose you're just born you know that way so i think in in pros i'm kind of a fast twitch muscle person i just have i have um i have a i'm pretty confident in my instincts if i'm trying to make something shorter and make it faster and i think it's weird because as you're suggesting the ambient intelligence of the piece goes up if i cut it back uh some people i'm sure it's the opposite if they if they expand the ambient intelligence comes up um I mean, our, our fellow Santa Cruzian, uh, John Franzen, is somebody who's just such a magnificent expander and, and builder of big, big worlds. Uh, but I think for me, it's an opposite. It feels like an opposite thing. I'm, I, I feel like um, I always joke that it's like, you know, my, my stories are like these little cars. You wind them up and put them on the floor and they just go under the couch really fast. You know, that's that's kind of the, the model. And, and then step out on them at, late at night. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> that's the next story. Yeah. Um, I have been speaking with George Saunders. His new collection of short stories is a Liberation Day. Thank you for joining me, George. Oh, it was such a refreshment. I, I, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.